This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to $4,000. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience to product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Weiland, as always, and today I'm here with Katie Sorara of Bullman. How's it going, Katie? Good. How are you, Adam? Good. So do you mind just uh, briefly introducing yourself and letting us know kind of what you do and what your background is and what you've been up to? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a UX designer at Boltmade, which is a um, software and product consultancy here in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, my background, I have an undergrad and a master's in systems design engineering. And sort of, um, I took that kind of technical background and discovered a love of UX. So I currently work um obviously in client services, I work with clients um, to develop products to design them. And I work with developers obviously to create those products awesome so I, there's a lot of things i want to talk to you about but maybe the f- best way to do it would just be kind of talk about how you guys approach building a product as far as from the day like the client first walks in the door and you're trying to figure out what that product is all the mm-hmm. way up to like building early stage prototypes and getting user feedback and validation and stuff so what is it what is like that very first kickoff meeting like for you guys when you have a new client comes in that has an idea for something and you guys are trying to figure out what it really is that they want you guys to build and, and what you need to do for them? Oh boy. <laughs> That's a tough question because it really depends on the client entirely. Um I've I found sort of that first initial meeting is really just sort of feeling out, you know, where are the clients on that product? Um what are their what's kind of their vision what's their goal and then from there kind of figuring out you know how you know how far are they on that thought process is it just kind of an idea and they they think they know how it works or are they working towards um you know do they have wireframes that kind of thing and that that kind of frames how you start that initial discussion um really that first you know we really focus on getting as much time intensively as we can with the client in the first week or so. And that's sort of, we call that our kind of initial kickoff sprint. Um, And that week sort of, I mean, it's not always a week, but it's mostly about getting everybody on the same page and unpacking what's in the client's head. Um, I think we find, we do find a lot of the time, clients have been thinking about this project forever and it's their baby and they, they have a lot of expectations and they've done a lot of thinking about it and they're really the experts in it. Um, and so that first week is really before you get to the UX design and, you know, the product and what problem are we solving is really about just sort of unpacking, you know, what, what's in their head, what are they envisioning? And then we will sort of take some different processes depending on where they are in that solution to sort of help them with that unpacking. Um, I just recently ran one where we did a um, an opportunity canvas, which is kind of like a lean canvas. Um, it's, I think it's by Jeff Patton, who wrote a book on story mapping. Okay. 
but essentially it's just a context. And, and I mean, a lot of these are sort of artificial contexts, but it's a context to talk to the client about their idea. So we start talking about, okay, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Um, how is it solved right now? How do you want to fit into the marketplace? Um, how does your solution solve that problem? And then eventually you start teasing out things like, what are the problems the users really have? And who are your users actually? And getting them kind of past that sort of demographic place into, you know, who are we actually designing for? And it, it kind of just goes on from there, but it's really initially just about unpacking um, all that information that's in their head. Cool. You talked about like an opportunity canvas. Is, mm-hmm. is that is that just what you're talking about there? Like just like those questions or is there like some sort of framework that you guys are like doing this around? Is it like a whiteboarding thing? Is there like any sort of structure to it? Or do you mind going into more detail about that yeah. if there is detail? Yeah, it's hard to explain because it, I I tend to kind of plan a new sprint, um, a new initial kind of kickoff roadmap sprint with the client, depending on where the client is at. So like different tools make sense for different people. Um, but generally it's about sort of that Google, it's kind of like the Google Ventures thing where you start, where you unpack all the information and get kind of that dump of everything that, you know, they've been thinking about and that they want to happen and, you know, all the designs they've already done. Um, and then you kind of go from there. So in, in this case, um, an opportunity canvas or a lean canvas as well is a, is a great kind of context to ask all of those questions so that you get a chance to unpack things like not just the problems in the users, but also things that are important when your client is sort of your user as well. So like what, what are their business goals? What are they trying to get out of it? What would be a success in this project? Um, and then from there, you move into more sort of user-centered um, UX practice. So who are the users? Um, what are our um, personas, for example? What are the problems we're trying to solve? What are the most important features? How are we going to manage all that kind of thing? Um, but it really just starts with getting it out um, you mentioned sort of, is it whiteboarding? It's usually sticky notes, to be honest, and usually it's a process of facilitation just to kind of ask the right questions and just get everything out on the board and organized in a way that everyone has the same mental model moving forwards. Do you guys like formally capture this stuff? Like I've always found as a developer getting onto a new project that maybe some Mm -hmm. people have already been working on. A lot of these questions that you're talking about, like who are your customers? Like how would you define success? Uh, What are the problems that you're solving? Would be like really cool things to be able to like go somewhere and see the answers to these questions. Um, Do you guys have like a process for for capturing this stuff and like keeping it in some places like your kind of anchor of what the project is all about or anything? Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because it's something we're starting to work on right now because we've seen that as a problem. If we get more developers coming in on a project or, you know, often you're swapping resources in and out um, based on expertise. So what we're playing with right now is sort of having a really light because we're not, I mean, documentation can weigh you down, but a really light project brief that kind of outlines that kind of thing. Um, but then it has to be a living document because everything that we say in that first couple days, it changes. It always changes. You get halfway through the project and you realize you have a different user or, you know, that thing that you thought was going to be amazing and was going to be the secret sauce isn't actually as great as yeah. you thought. So, I mean, it's it's great to have things like that, but you have to keep them up to date. And so they have to be lean enough that that's not too much overhead. Cool. Interesting. Uh, what are some of the, like, the biggest challenges that you have when you're kind of doing that initial kickoff process with the clients? Like, do you have any things that kind of come up a lot that are struggles in trying to kind of sort out? Totally. Um, there's a couple things that come up. The first one being usually the clients think they've already thought everything through. You know, if they haven't gone through a process like this, 
it's sort of this feeling of why are we wasting time going through um, who the users are and what the problems are. Like, I know what I want, just build it for me. And so, you know, at, at some level, that's the kind of client that maybe should go to a different design or development shop that will just take their drawings and create it. But for us, it's sort of like, okay, let's just take a step back and we kind of force them to go through this flow in a, in a nice kind of kid glove way. And, and usually what we find is by the end, they realize, oh, you know, a lot of these questions that you've asked, we haven't thought about yet. Um, and things come up. So, so by the end, they've kind of bought into it. But there is often a little bit of sort of, um, they're just kind of unsure about that. Um, the other piece that we see a lot is that often clients are used to sort of thinking, um, and not necessarily doing so putting putting like a sharpie and a sticky note in their hands and telling them to write stuff or to sort things that's often really scary for surprisingly confident people and so part of that process as a someone who's moderating and leading those workshops is to make that a safe place to do that and to get them over that scariness because otherwise you end up doing everything and you don't get as much value out of having the clients there yeah so you kind of mentioned that um you know, sometimes people are maybe frustrated isn't the word, but like they want to just get going, right? They want to like mm-hmm. hit the ground running. They want to come in the first day and have people writing code or whatever. Uh, yeah. How much of this sort of thing do you figure out with the client like in advance? Like what are they expecting when they come in? Have they like bought into this idea of like an initial design sprint in the beginning? Or do you guys kind of like maybe tell them that, you know, well, we'll have a kickoff meeting, but maybe they don't realize like how in depth mm-hmm. you're going to get as far as questioning what they actually want to do with their product. Um, I mean, Jim, who is the founder of Bowlmade, does a really good job at selling them on the process. And the whole team that's sort of creating these leads is is on the watch, I guess, for clients that really wouldn't work with this kind of process. So part of it is a little bit of self-selection. Like you're just not going to work with that client that really needs you to work in a waterfall method, for example. It's just, it's just there's certain clients that it just wouldn't work for. Um, but they come in, I think, with a general understanding but if they've never been through a process like this before they don't really know what to expect so you can explain it as many times as you want but until they're in there they don't necessarily know what's going on but we win them over (laughs) awesome so one of the things that i've found to be a struggle when starting a new project with clients sometimes is getting them to scale back like Mm -hmm. uh, i've had so many situations where we try and ask a customer a question like, you know, who is your, who's your customer? Who are you building this for? Like, who's the person that is going to use this? What's their name? Like, can we talk to them? Like, you know, trying to identify who is like the real person that exists in real life that this product is going to solve problems for. And a lot of the time they have this idea that, you know, their product is going to be for everyone. It's like, well, yeah, it'll work for them, but it'll also work for this person. It'll (laughs) also work for this person. It'll also work for this person. Do you have any strategies for kind of getting people to narrow their idea in on something that's like that you can really measure success against, or do you think that's not maybe as important? Um, I mean, every single answer to all these questions will be, it depends. Um, <laughs> but that said, um, I've, I found success often in doing sort of persona workshops, which usually just entails sort of trying to segment that even if it's everybody like let's just pick out some segments that we think there'd be a lot of value for and then getting them I mean a lot of the work that we do is really just about getting clients to prioritize things so it's it's less scary when you're not like cutting people out and you're just prioritizing them so you're saying yes maybe everybody could use it but the most important people are 
this subset who have these needs and these characteristics um, and, and sort of telling stories about who those people are and uh, what they care about and where you can find them and what they might be like. Um, and so often when you do that too, you find some very compelling business cases or very compelling sort of features that would be great for those people. And so if you can get them excited about that and get them to say, you know, like these segments really we're going to focus on them for now. They'll feel comfortable in that usually, especially if they're the ones making that decision on which ones are most important. And then you can start tying features to those. So often um, we'll do something like develop a bunch of different personas and say, okay, we know these are all the personas. These ones are most important. Here are all of our features. These are the features that are specifically for those personas. So now that when we do a release planning meeting or we start working through our sprints, we can start with those features because we know that those are for the people that we really care about. And so that that sort of like, and it's the same thing with features too. If If we're getting clients to prioritize rather than cut stuff, they're a little bit more comfortable with it and they can get sort of more involved into there. And then usually it just kind of flows from there and they kind of forget about those features that weren't for their important people to begin with. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting approach actually to talk about. It's almost like you use like prioritization as like a trick to get people to cut things <laughs> without realizing that they're kind of things or like being able yeah. to say no by really just saying later instead. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it does depend on your model. So our model is very much about, you know, you pay us, um, for our team per week and we keep working until you know you're happy and that might be when we hit a money budget thing or, or when we've hit certain features but it's not about committing to a certain amount of features in a certain amount of time so if if you are committing to a certain number of features in a certain amount of time or a certain budget you can't do that kind of strategy but because we're just sort of saying you know we're going to work until it feels pretty good or until you've used up as much budget as makes sense for you um, then things get cut, but we're talking about them as simply being deprioritized. So it, it's a little bit of a mind game, but <laughs> I think it, it works. It works really well. And I think it's often in the moment you feel like that feature is so important because as a client, you know, you've spent so much time thinking about it and you feel like that's going to be awesome and you really want it. But when you step back and you look at the personas, sometimes it's hard to admit that maybe that thing that you loved isn't so great. But to say, okay, we'll just talk about that later and we'll deprioritize that, it's kind of an it's it's a nice way out too, I think. Yeah. So when you're talking about um, trying to focus in on like certain personas that you're trying to optimize, you know, the product for at the beginning, do you ever run into friction where uh, something that you introduced that would really optimize the experience for one potential customer? sometimes might cut out like a lower priority customer from mm -hmm. even be able to use the product. How do you deal with something like that? And how do clients react to things like that? Um, I can't really recall any extreme cases of that yet in my experience. Um, but if, if your customers are that different, that a feature would work for one and would completely cut out another, then, I mean, that's just a choice they're going to have to make because if we don't put that feature in, you know, that's, that's just the trade off. So it's, I don't know, it's hard to say. It just is something that, you know, they have to deal with. And there's going to be, in any development process, there's going to be really difficult decisions as far as features and what makes it and what doesn't um, and how much work you put into each of them. The other nice thing is that, you know, you can say, okay, do we know whether we want that feature or not? Maybe we're not sure yet. So let's um, let's prototype it and let's get it out there and see how it feels. And sometimes those decisions kind of just shake out in the wash. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm thinking of examples where maybe you'd have... You know, maybe you're building an app for contractors or something, mm -hmm. right? And there's some feature set that 
by building something in that works in some automatic way, it creates this like really awesome workflow for someone who renovates bathrooms, but like now the app isn't usable for someone who does landscaping or something. So does it just come down to trying to figure out like, who do we really want to solve the problem for? And is like the market that we're solving the problem for still going to be big enough to justify building the app or does generalizing too much basically remove any opportunity that we even have to deliver like a very useful workflow and powerful Mm -hmm. user experience for someone? Yeah, it's tricky. And some of that too, like some of it also just falls into business decisions. Um, By no means do I ever make decisions for clients about what their product should be. So those decisions at some point need to be made by them. And so that, that is a decision they would have to make, you know, do we prioritize this user over another to the point that we're cutting out that user? And what impact does that have to my monetization? You know, that's, that in the end has to be their decision because they have to live with the consequences of that. I move on to a different project. (laughs) Do you ever have issues where, you know, you're getting really, really deep into a project, kind of like what you're talking about, kind of related to what you're talking about, but, you know, you get really attached to what you're working on and you're really uh, into this experience that you're designing and then all of a sudden the client, like, wants to do things differently and you feel, like, invested enough in the product and that you understand the domain enough that you think that your decisions are going to really improve it and the client fights against that. Is that a struggle that you've ever come against with client work? Um, here and there. Um, but I mean, I, f- I feel like everybody experiences that with client work sometimes. In the end, your customer is paying for your work. So you, you need to make them happy. And if they want to go in a different direction, that's their prerogative. But as UX designers, perhaps we have a few more tools that we can use to, you know, sway them over to our side if we feel that that's the right way to go. Um, for example, you know, you can go off and do some user testing on your own time and bring that back and say like, hey, I know we wanted to go in this direction, but I just wanted to let you know that, you know, um, this is what people were saying about it. And, you know, this is why I feel this is the right way to go. It's really about just having that trusted relationship with a client where they'll listen to you um, and they trust that what you're saying is coming from the right place. And you can trust that, you know, what they're saying is also coming from obviously a place that's in their own interests. So it's just kind of navigating that. And, you know, you can't get you just can't get that personally invested in client work. I think in any work really, because even like aside from clients moving products in different directions that you didn't really think they should go, users will move your products in completely different directions far more than clients ever will. And so design is really about trying to decouple that and just sort of going where the right place is. Cool. So you talked a little bit about like uh, getting user validation and stuff like that. How early in like a project are you prototyping stuff or trying to get feedback from users as soon as possible i client work maybe more so than when you're working on a like if you're working on a product team in a in a company often you can get more budget for that especially if it's sort of a design driven culture client side sometimes it's harder to justify but you can always get it in front of people that you work with Um, you can start doing paper prototypes or we often use InVision to prototype, just simple. You can just simply link screens and it's it's amazing. And so you can get, you know, you can get your boyfriend or girlfriend to try it out. You can get your friend to try it out. Um, often, you know, just talking about concepts with people in the office can get you a good gauge um, how things are going. And it, it's just kind of having those touch points as often as possible and as, as deep as you can afford to makes the most sense usually. So is your strategy kind of, I guess like I'm trying to think of what I would do and I th- I think what I would my instinct would be to try and basically use my own instinct and experience to try and figure out what I think a product is supposed to be and then mm-hmm. figure out 
the cheapest way that I can present that experience to someone to validate, right? Yeah. So are the tools that you're using for this, like you talked about Envision, you talked about paper prototypes, uh, you know, in what sort of situations do you use different tools and what kind of motivates you to do a paper prototype over an Envision prototype? Or maybe you build like a quick and dirty Rails app because maybe mm-hmm. that's faster based on the situation. So what kind of, sort of guides those prototyping decisions? Um I mean, you can go back to almost a scientific method process. So you have a hypothesis. Your hypothesis could be, you know, I think this menu structure is intuitive. I think this little batch that pops up is fun. Um, I think the whole app is great. I think users can get through this onboarding quickly. Um, So once you have a hypothesis, you can design a prototype that's going to help you to test that. Initially, often you're looking at things like information architecture and general app flow. And so that's really easy with something um, like paper prototypes or with InVision where you can just make like super quick and dirty wireframe screens and link them together and just see if people can figure out how to navigate. When you're looking at um, stuff that's a little bit more about interaction, that's when you need to start doing code or finding ways to hack together what it's really going to feel like. Um, Paper can also be really nice for some sort of simple interactions and for getting people kind of out of the weeds. Um, often when you go for feedback, especially with technical people, they'll kind of get into like, oh, well, like maybe that drop out could be more like this or, you know, what if you made this color like that? Um, so when you take them into a paper prototype, they can't really nitpick that stuff because it doesn't exist. So, so there's kind of a combination of, you know, what are you trying to prove and what's the best way to get that feedback? That's kind of interesting because I've always thought that I've always worried that when I'm trying to get feedback on something, like someone's first impression just looking at something is really, mm-hmm. I feel like that's really going to skew their overall impression. You know what I mean? When it comes to like, just like general aesthetic polish, right? So it sounds like one thing that you're kind of saying here is that you can use things like paper prototypes or like mm-hmm. wireframes to sort of force someone to f- not let that influence their first yeah. impression. Is that an important part of choosing those sorts of tools? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Cause I think you you only get a certain amount of time, especially if you're doing kind of quick and dirty um, testing with people in the office or you, you don't have very much time to pay people to come in and look at stuff. You kind of have to tailor, you know, what window are they looking at this through? And if you're working on menu navigation, then like just give them a menu with like when you click on something, there's just a box that says like graph goes here. So then they're not looking and giving you feedback on things that you're not ready to get feedback on. That that selection is pretty important for sure. It's it's an easy trap to fall into to say, oh, well, it needs to be really polished because I want to know what their, like, their real feedback would be. But then you're going to get potentially feedback on that graphic polish, but not on the menu structure. And you've now invested all that time into polishing it, and you might change it. So, I mean, at that point, I mean, if you go all the way down that that line of thinking, you might as well just make the entire app and put it out there and see what people think. So there's there's a lot to be said for doing it as fast as you can so that you can change it as quickly as you get that feedback. Yeah, for sure. What do you think the difference is, like kind of in your opinion, in your workflow between what you would call a prototype and what you would call an MVP? Um, I don't think there's a huge difference. MVP can sometimes be a loaded term because it means different things to different people. Um, I've always assumed an MVP was sort of the minimum thing that you could build that would prove your hypothesis. Um, But in the process of creating a product, you often have many different hypotheses. And so you might have an MVP, which really means the smallest item that the client is willing to put out there into the world. But an MVP in like a lean 
UX methodology could just be a website with a button that goes nowhere. And all you're doing is measuring how often people would click on that button. So I, I mean, those terms mean different things to different people. Yeah, I guess if you're for, if you forget like the lean startup MVP where they have just like a landing page and they're tracking yeah. like whatever. Yeah, the if we're t- if, yeah, if we're talking like what's like a minimum viable product is in something that actually solves the problem that you that you mm-hmm. set out to solve. Where do you kind of draw the line between something that you're just kind of showing to you know hand selected people to get feedback on that you're still iterating on versus something that you're willing to like put out publicly and start getting public feedback on you know what i mean yeah i think so i think prototypes often to me are sort of me exploring different pieces of the design and then of the application so i might prototype um a menu navigation or i might prototype like a specific little interaction or you know how does it this map widget work and then the mvp is actually what the developers are creating sort of in sync with me so there usually we try to run the designers a couple sprints ahead of the developers so the developers at least in sort of the way the clients think about it the developers are creating that releasable thing and my prototypes are varying levels of fidelity to help me to test my ideas that the developers will then create that there's some overlap because sometimes i don't have the skills you know i can't just go and create a quick and dirty quote unquote ruby application for example so there is definitely overlap and i do rely on developers to help create prototypes as well so when you're building like an mvp right or or you're prototyping stuff do you take the path of like limiting scope as much as possible and trying to deliver the best possible experience for that like small feature set? Or do you think it makes more sense to deliver like a passable experience for a slightly larger feature set that covers more of the problem that the client set out to solve? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, that ends up being a decision that the clients make and we make sure they make that consciously. So we kind of talk about, you know, you might have all these different features that you want in your product. And so what we like to do is kind of start with shallow depth on each of them and kind of create a workable MVP for each of those important features. And then at that point, decide which ones we want to go deeper on and which ones we want to invest on and which ones maybe aren't as great anymore. So we'll leave them as is or even take them out. Or maybe we add a new one. And so as long as the clients are in there in that kind of roadmap and release planning meetings and they're there throughout the process of the project they're the ones making that decision so it it depends entirely on you know what are their business goals with this app who's going to be using it um, what are those features how risky do we feel they are or not um, how does it feel if they're only a certain depth um, and and all of that changes obviously with time and with the project so it's it's difficult to describe you know there's no one right answer for that yeah i guess I, when i think about it more I think probably it kind of depends on what your competitive advantage is going to be mm-hmm. in, in your product, mm-hmm. right? So if you're competing with a bunch of competitors that already have well-thought-out, well-designed products that have a pretty decent user experience, then it's hard to put out an MVP that isn't better than what they yeah. have if if you're yeah. trying to be competitive. But if you have sort of found a set of people that have a problem that no one's really tried to solve with like modern technology then there's so many opportunities for example where you know some company has some archaic process that they 
use spreadsheets and manually manage a bunch of stuff. And you could build an app that just removes hours and hours of work from people's day, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to maybe have the fancy animations or the login with Facebook or <laughs> whatever on stuff like that, right? Is that something mm-hmm. that you guys sort of take into consideration when deciding like what parts of a product to focus on? Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, some of that, I think if your clients are smart, they're already thinking about if you're just trying to compete head to head with Google on a search engine, for example, that's gonna be tricky unless you've found something where you can do it better than them. Sort of like you were saying, if there's some little thing that you can do that's much better than Google or that you can do that's much better than, you know, whoever the established giant is in that space usually it's better to then focus on that and that subset of users. And then you can start adding on and carving off other little chunks for yourself. But to try to go in full polished and compete head to head, you know, that's a lot of money to be investing to go against someone who has way more money than you do. Um, So it's some of it is sort of clients and their business process and their product management, but that's something you can help them with, with a lot of those canvases to sort of talk about that and at least get out, you know, what are we focusing on? What's going to make us special? And then if, as you keep those in mind in release planning and roadmap planning, that kind of stuff, you're, you're going to end up with something that's hopefully going to solve a need and, and does it in a good way. Cool. Do you guys do more work with people that are in, that are trying to break into industries that already have a lot of competition or with people that have an idea for something brand new where maybe they're going to be first to market? Um, we're pretty across the board there. I mean, we work with a lot of people who are starting startups and we're going to sort of help them develop their MVP and help them build out their dev team. And then we do also work with, you know, established sort of fortune 500 companies that just need some help developing this, um, you know, extra bit of functionality or just need someone to help supplement their teams. So, you know, it's, it's kind of across the board there kind of getting back to some of the earlier stage stuff again i have a couple more things that came to mind but Mm -hmm. something that i've been thinking about a lot lately that i've been struggling with a little bit and having conversations with people is um trying to get people to realize that they don't actually understand the problem that they think they understand Mm -hmm. like like Mm -hmm. a lot of times like someone will present you with a solution and you ask you like well why do we need that solution like what's it solving and then they'll give you like another solution sort of almost like it's really hard to get people to get to the very root of the problem sometimes and and figure out like you know okay well we need to build an alphabetical alphabetically sorted list of contacts and we need to be able to mm-hmm. filter that list of contacts it's like well why do we need to do that oh well because people need to be able to filter their contacts the problem is that people can't filter their contacts well that's <laughs> that's not really the problem right like why yeah. does someone need to filter their contacts um do you have any strategies or things you try and do with clients to try and get to the bottom of those things a little bit faster and kind of avoid some of that you know bike shinning or just frustrations <laughs> that comes up over some of that stuff yeah, totally. There's, I mean, there's a couple of things that sort of, there's, there's kind of like artificial contracts of the, you know, an opportunity canvas or whatever kind of forces you to talk in certain contexts in certain ways. And if, if you're good at moderating that discussion, you can say, okay, let's rephrase that. How would we say that in terms of a problem that someone might have? Or how would we rephrase that in terms of a verb of something someone might do? Um, but the other funny thing is, as you were saying that you kept asking why, and that's, that's a really great technique. It's, there's actually a technique called five whys. And basically you just ask why five times over and over again to try to get into like really why not just, not just because someone wants to, needs to be able to sort their list. But if you keep asking why at some point you'll get to something that's a little bit more at the crux of it. Yeah. Do you ever, I guess you can almost kind of ask it until you get to a point where it's like, well, 
that's too early of a problem for us to solve with this product <laughs> and you ju- and you just kind of like find that point where it's like yeah this is where our product fits in as far as yeah solving yeah. that problem for someone yeah usually you get to a point where they don't know the answer um and that's good if you're in sort of those roadmap and planning meetings and you get to a point where they don't know the answer that's something that you know you should be talking about I've been following a lot of like the jobs to be done stuff for a while. I don't know if you've like really mm-hmm. followed any of that stuff, but something that I thought was like a really interesting uh, thing that they mentioned was instead of like asking why someone wants to do something, like ask when someone is going to use mm. a certain feature. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was like really interesting way to like get to the root of that problem like a lot faster it feels like you know what i mean because if you put someone in a situation where they have to like tell me a story about what's happening to this person why they're going to open this app and go to this page like what is the situation that they were in that forced them to go and do this then all of a sudden you can i feel like maybe that'll help get an understanding of that stuff a little bit faster Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know obviously having the more context you have about the the circumstances that someone is in when they're trying to use something that you've built you can gain a lot of insight into how to optimize for that that you might not have had before if you're just thinking about like the page that you're designing on the screen. Yeah, definitely. That that like kind of the context that someone's going to be in while they're using the application or the product is extremely important, um, especially as we're designing more for mobile or even smartwatches. The context that you're using it is very different than the context when you're on your laptop. And there's, you know, there's competing things for your attention and there's, you know, maybe you need to be able to come back multiple times because you're in the middle of grocery shopping or something. So that sort of that when is a, is a great, great addition for sure. What else is kind of going on? Is there anything in your field that you're really interested in right now or that's like that you've been researching or that you're excited about? Um, I've been doing a lot more story mapping recently. Um, That's something that uh, Mark Connolly at Boltmade has been running a bunch of workshops on. And I just recently, um, last week, actually used it sort of in the process of that kind of unpacking and then um, release planning. And it's really an awesome framework to use with clients I'm really finding. Story mapping is sort of this process of taking all the different features and all the things you want users to be able to do and just sticking them all up on a whiteboard and then sorting them um, into a story. So you sort of sort them into these columns of things people would do first and then things people would do second and you sort of you start to create these big themes as columns. Um, So you might have sort of an onboarding and then you would have sort of like a, I don't know, a search for something or what have you. So as you go left to right, you have this great sort of story of how a user is going to use your application. And then as you go down, you see all the different features that are part of each of those steps. And then you can take that and start horizontally slicing it and say, you know, this is the first cut or this is the first release and it has these features from these steps in that story. And so you've got this sort of two-dimensional awesome graph of how you're going to develop this product and how it's going to evolve and you know where your MVP line is and you can say these are the features that are most important and they're in these columns and you can visualize which um, which steps maybe you're deprioritizing and which ones you're going really deep on because they're really important. And so that that's sort of, I'm really enjoying that kind of process recently. That's, that sounds like it would be a good tool for getting clients to kind of understand like all the dependencies maybe involved yeah, with all the different yeah. features and what you really need to be focusing on early. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a really good prioritization exercise and it's also a good sort of context to have some discussions about technical feasibility too. Um, I mean, if we talk about um, things that are difficult when you're working with clients, especially non-technical clients, that understanding of 
what's really difficult to develop and what's really easy and what's risky and what's not. I often find sometimes they have it completely backwards and, you know, things they think are really easy are actually really hard. And, you know, some things they don't bring up because they think they're impossible, but they're actually really easy. So to kind of unpack that and have that discussion and have a thing that you can point at and say, this is easy or this is hard or let's break this one down. That sort of helps to frame the discussion. It makes it awesome. easier. I, I didn't ask this specifically, but I think I know the answer now. But who who do you guys have all involved in these like original kickoff meetings? Like, is it just the UX people? Do you have developers in the room? Um, we have we have everybody. Everyone who might possibly touch the project that wants to be in that meeting is in that meeting. So definitely developers, um, UX designers, um, often. Usually the UX designers are the ones running those meetings because mm-hmm. we sort of have those moderation skills and um, some of those tool sets. Graphic designers, um, just everybody. Sometimes Jim pops in, CEOs. Sometimes um, we've been sort of experimenting with design buddies. So you can kind of pull in another UX designer or two to help you with that moderation and also with just sort of the the other stuff that comes along with some of these activities like reorganizing post-it notes, post-it notes and writing stuff down and recording things. And so... We you end up with this huge mob of people, lots of ideas, lots of stuff flowing, um, and then you can kind of break away, and everybody has an understanding of where the project is at and where it's going. Awesome. Do you have any uh, good resources for the story mapping stuff, or anything else that you think would is important stuff to read or get familiar with for someone who's in the client services space and is working with helping clients, you know, try and build successful products and stuff? Um, I mean, story mapping is in, I think it's an O'Reilly book by Jeff Patton. Um, and that's an awesome book. It's, it's super easy to read and super easy to apply. Um, there's a ton of resources though. I think like the Google Ventures one is something that um, a lot of people are starting to become familiar with. And it's a, it's a great framework to start with um, as far as kind of unpacking and getting to a point where you can test an MVP. If people are in the area, I know <laughs> Mark Connolly is running some workshops actually on um, Sprint not sprint planning, sorry, um, story mapping in the next couple of weeks. Um, but there's lots of stuff online about that. Who are some people that you um, really look up to in the industry that you keep up with that you think other people might be able to learn stuff from? Um, so I recently read a book by Abby the IA, who, which is her Twitter handle. I'm completely forgetting her last name. Um, IA standing for Information Architect. Abby Covert. Um, and so she wrote a book called um, How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Um, and it's a really like nice, simple book that talks about how to organize information and like all the different ways that you can kind of dissect things and um, figure things out and make decisions. And that's, that's a great tool set. Um, also, just like all the Rosenfeld media books, if you look those up, those are really approachable books on user experience. Um, there's uh, a book called User Experience Team of One, which is a really great primer. I put everyone, or I point everyone towards that book. It's a really great primer of kind of a lot of basic techniques that you can use and even how to set up sort of a UX practice and a UX methodology and a UX toolkit to help you to decide, you know, which tools should I use with this client and, you know, what might their outputs be and how do I run a session with those clients um, at a very high level, but it's really approachable and it's um, a great place to start. Awesome. Well, uh, it's been really awesome having you on the show. Is there anything that you want to plug or anything before we get going? Um, look at Boltmade, boltmade.com. We're awesome. 
Awesome. <laughs> What's the best way for people to get in touch if they have questions or, or follow you and see what you're up to? Um, I'm on Twitter at Katie Sarar. It's just my name. Um, and that's a great place to start. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, it's been really awesome having you on. I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot of stuff from this. And uh, hopefully uh, people have some interesting feedback and uh, people can build better products as uh, developers who maybe don't have a ton of the the UX skills that UX professionals like yourself have mastered. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has the skills. You just have to discover them. <laughs> awesome. So uh, show notes for this episode are going to be able to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 18. And if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's really helpful for us. And if you have any uh, comments or feedback, you can leave them on the episode page where we have a discuss comment section, or you can uh, tweet at fullstackradio or at me or at Katie or send me an email and let me know what you thought. Or if you have any suggestions for topics or guests reach out as well thanks guys see you next time